You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. Tom Evans is the creator of the LCAP Report. He started out taking photos of all the climbers he'd see on LCAP and got tired of answering questions about who was doing what and how XSN was going. So he innovated. He started posting a daily report accompanied by his photos of what was happening on LCAP during the main Yosemite climbing season. And he since has crafted a legacy of 22 years of documenting the center of the universe, LCAP climbing. With his recent retirement from the LCAP report, we decided we wanted to celebrate this legacy and hear all his thoughts on the climbing history he's documented, witnessing accidents and rescues, what's next in LCAP climbing, the impact of social media in the valley, and what motivated him in the first place to create the LCAP report. Dive in to get to know one of the legendary names from the LCAP bridge scene, a conversation just for you, unique in all the world. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Presented by Adidas Terex, a global leader in the outdoor sporting goods industry. With the mission to enable all humans to live a more connected, conscious, and adventurous life, Adidas Terex combines high-performance technologies with fashion-forward designs to weather the forces of nature and inspire every human being to find their own summits. Since 1981, Outdoor Research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. If you're looking for the ultimate adventure guide and navigation app, our sponsor, Onyx Backcountry, has your back. Onyx has paired climbing area locations, route beta, photos, and approach trails from Mountain Project with premium GPS navigation and mapping tools like high-resolution 3D maps, private land data, recent satellite imagery, and offline maps so you can easily navigate to the boulder or crag. And for the off-season or those multi-activity days, check out over 1,500 in-depth guidebook ski tours and over 650,000 miles of hiking and mountain biking trails, route building tools, personal waypoints, and on-the-ground tracking. Use promo code AAC30 for 30% off Onyx Backcountry, and don't wait to find your next adventure. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Tom. I'm really excited to ask you a bunch of questions today and get a lot of insight on the LCAP report. And I just kind of want to start today's interview with Tom Evans off with a reminder that this is recorded just for you, unique in all the world, like he signs all of his LCAP reports from the very beginning. So 
Tom, could you just start us off with, for people who might not know, which is a very scant few, because most people know what the LCAP report is, what is the LCAP report and where did the idea come from? Well, <laughs> that's the LCAP report was kind of, kind of has a long uh, path to get to it. I basically was photographing in Yosemite. I decided I wanted to write a book. And so back in, uh, back in the late mid, mid to late nineties, I started, I went out in the field during the summer because I was still teaching school back then. And I started taking photographs for this book and I would just photograph climbers on the rock. And so after a while, some climbers would come in the cafeteria there at the lodge. They'd come up and say, hey, we see you out in the woods taking pictures. What are you doing, man? And I said, well, I'm just photographing. I'm going to write this book, you know, and I want to get about 70 photographs or so, uh, make it a pic, you know, some real nice prints of climbers on El Cap. I had seen a book, Galen Rowell's old book, and it had a Glenn Denny photograph in it that had the climb Tissack on Half Dome. It was a big telephoto shot of Robbins and Pratt and the guys. Uh, Liz Hennick was on that too. And uh, I really was impressed by that photograph. And I said, you know, to myself, I want to take photographs like that. I really do. And I had no idea how to do it. So I bought a cheap little lens and a camera. And I went out in the woods and kind of stalked around until I could see the cliff. And so I started taking, back then it was color slides. And so uh, the guys in the cast said, what are you doing? I said, oh, you know, I'm doing this book. And so they said, okay, well, you're taking a bunch of pictures. I said, yeah. Well, listen, the ones you don't want, could, could we get those? You know, and I said, well, I really hadn't thought about it, but yeah, sure. You know, you could have my rejects if that's what you want. So anyway, uh, so then I, I set up at the bridge, the El Cap Bridge, which by the way is unnamed. There is no name. So I've always called it the El Cap Bridge, hoping someday the Park Service will figure out that this huge rock that's right in front of it, the bridge should be named after the rock, but they haven't done anything. So anyway, I digress. So anyway, uh, I started shooting from the bridge and climbers would walk by the bridge and say, hey, what are you doing, man? And I knew some of them because I've been in, in the climbing scene for many, many years. And I was at that time probably uh, in my mid fifties. So anyway, so, I, so they said, well, what's going on? And you know, what's happening on El Cap? And I'd say, well, there's some guys on Zodiac and there's some guys over there on the nose and over on Salathe and on Mescalito. They said, really? Wow. Who, you know, what? that's pretty cool. What are they doing? You know, who are they? And da, da, da. And so then more then 20 minutes later, another clump of climbers comes by on the way to the cliff or whatever. Hey, what's going on up there? Is, is there anybody crowding the nose route? So I so said, I go, I go through the spiel again and then again and again. And I finally thought, yeah, gone, man. I'm spending my day talking and saying the same thing over and over again. Maybe I'll just put a little a little post on Super Topo, uh, Chris McNamara's old site, and I'll just write. Okay, Zodiac, four parties, da 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 da. They're they're doing very cursory, not much detail, just who's what they're doing and who they are, and what the roots are. And so that's what I did. And the people on Super Topo ate it up. I really didn't think they would, you know, there was no plan to make a blog or anything. It was just, I got to get these guys out of my hair. And so when they would keep coming by and say, Hey, go to super topo, read yesterday's report that I wrote. And I may have even called it the LCAP report. I'm not sure really. It's a long time ago, 20 years, 25 years ago. So anyway, uh, people started getting into it, you know? And so then 
they said, well, why don't you put some pictures on there? And I was totally a slide guy. I, I didn't know any digital stuff. And then, uh, so this was some time passed. And then, uh, so Dean Feidelman and some of the other photographers sort of took me under their wing because I didn't know anything, you know, about photography, really. I was just trying to get it to work and it didn't work very well. I, I wasn't very successful with the photography. But anyway, but I had these stories to tell, you know, and I would tell it with a pretty good dose of humor and a little sarcasm. You know, like climbers are, you like to you like to overtell the story a little bit. And especially if it's a bad story, you ask a climber about some climb. If it's a good climb, it was easy. They don't have much to say. But if it's a little epic, oh, yeah, dude, the ropes froze up and my hand got broken. And, you know, so people want to read. They want to read that kind of stuff. They don't want to read. Everything's fine, guys. No problem. See you later. They don't want to. They don't want to read that. So I would <laughs> put a little bit of my own, you know, my view of it. Right. And right off the bat, since I'm an old military guy, I I told him right off the bat, hey, you know, if, if you don't want to hear the truth, don't read my report. Because mm -hmm. that's, you know, I'm going to tell you what it is, how it is and what's going on straight up the real deal. Right. And so after a while, people started trusting in me after they mm -hmm. read and can see, see what I was doing. They said, yeah, well, Tom, he seems to know what he's talking about. So anyway. So the people kept coming by and and, uh, and I would send them over to Super Topo. And then uh, Feidelman and the boys, they said, hey, you know, Eric Sloan said, you should have a website. I said, website? I can't, I can't even spell website. Yeah, I don't know how to operate a website. And I and Feidelman and the guy said, you need to go digital. All that slide stuff, man, you're just wearing yourself out, waiting two weeks to get the shots back. So I said, huh. Well, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't know how to do a blog, a website. You know, I don't know. So Chris Falkenstein chimed up on Super Topo. Hey, I'll do it all for you. Just tell me what you want. He said, I'll go. I'll do the technical part. You do the, you know, you're the front man. And I'll and I'll make. So, so I think I use the example. If, if it was about a car, I'm the driver and he's the mechanic. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what it turned out to be. He never wanted to be mentioned. He just whenever I had a problem. He, he would tell me what to do. And so I got I got the website and then I figured out how to do the digital pictures. And so it sort of started from there. And I figured when I first started it, man, if I could just get a thousand people, a thousand people to read that in, in the, you know, when I'm done, that would really be cool. Well, suddenly I started getting 8,000 hits a day, right? There was, there's a vacuum. What had happened was, from Robbins and the boys and uh, Charlie Porter and that crew, nobody talked about those people. Like the American Alpine Club Journal, right? We used to read that all the time, but you'd only get a, a little bit of it. It was like somebody did a great route. Okay, what was the rating of the route? Da, 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 very brief description. And then you're on to the next route because that's not a long drawn out thing. It's just information. So I started writing that and people said, wow. Oh, you know, I, I never saw. What's this thing on Zodiac called the nipple pitch? I, I heard about it, but, you know, and they, oh, well, I've got a picture of that. And so suddenly there was this wealth of knowledge coming out. And I had uh, gotten to the point before that when I was kind of disappointed. Yosemite had sort of fallen into the backwater of climbing. You didn't maybe climbing magazine would have one article a year about this is our Yosemite edition. And they had 10 pictures. Well, I had 10 or 15 pictures every day right? <laughs> yeah. and I wrote it every day. 
and it was very time consuming and a lot of energy and and work went into it. It was expensive to do all that, but it took off by 2006 or seven. It was a big deal and people mm. all over the, and fortunately with the internet, you know, people all over the world could read it. Right. And so it made suddenly Yosemite was in the news again. It made Yosemite more relevant again. I had scooped it up out of the backwater and thrown it into the current, into the mainstream. And people really liked that. And nobody else did anything like that. You know, it was a, it was an invention of mine. And mm -hmm. so um, and that actually came from the bridge scene, um, from the, the scene that developed at the bridge. Since I was at the bridge photographing and I had, uh, well, I'll just tell you what I asked climbers. What's the greatest climbing shot in the world? Do I have to have an answer? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And that's what's so funny about it. It's got the best answer. So I'd say, what's the best climbing shot in the world? See, oh, gosh, there's one of that. Da, da, da. And I said, no, 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 no. The one you're in. Yeah. <laughs> one you're in. Yeah. So, I use that all the time now on uh, new climbers, mostly foreign climbers now. But yeah, I'll just say, what's the best climbing shot in the one you're in? That guy will pay with blood for a picture of him on the great roof or doing the king swing. If I tried to sell you that picture, yeah, nice picture, but I'm not going to, you know, it's not me. So anyway, so that's sort of how it took off. I sort of became the center of this, uh, of this hub sort of a deal. So we call it the center of the universe. Well, actually the center of the universe, it was the El Cap bridge. And I was the guy, I was the captain there. I was, it was like the bridge was a, was a, a boat or something. And I was the guy who was running it. Right. And so everybody who came by, all the climbers, guess what they wanted? They wanted that picture of themselves. Right. So suddenly old Tom. And by then I was, uh, let's see, by the time the report started up on the Internet and the website, I was 64 years old. Right. And so and I had climbed El Cap a bunch in the past and, you know, I had a, a long climbing career. Nothing great. I was an average climber, but motivated, you know. Anyway, so then people would start they would all stop and ask what was going on and they'd read the report. I said, read the report. And then their wife and their daughter and their son and their mother and father. Gee, I wonder how Billy's doing. We didn't have cell phones back then, right? They weren't mm -hmm. so prevalent and you couldn't get con you couldn't get connected in Yosemite anyway. It's a black hole. <laughs> it was. It's still pretty bad, but for internet. So I'd be getting emails. How's Johnny doing on Mescalito? And what about Sally and Billy? And so I said, it's okay. Don't worry. Huh? They're doing great. I, here's a picture of them. You know? mm. So people would write in. The civilians, I call them. The civilians are, well, they're not Turons. The Turons are different, but these are civilians, but who are connected. And so uh, it became very popular. I had never thought that it would be this way. But I, this old guy who nobody really knew because I was never famous. I was in a few magazines and stuff, but never famous or anything. All of a sudden, I was the guy, right? Oh, we'll talk to Tom about that. Oh, yeah, we well, wonder. Ask Tom. He knows. Tom knows all that stuff. Because every day I was there for the spring and the fall. So I spent three months every day, religiously, no days off unless it rained. And I prayed for rain sometimes, you know. <laughs> I got to get some rest or whatever. So can you tell us more about the El Cap bridge scene? It just became this, this thing. And the center of the universe has changed a bit. It used to be in the deli at, at the village, okay? The deli, Degnan's Deli, 
everybody went there in the afternoon and you hung out and all the guys were there, even the old guys, uh, Chenard and Robbins and all those guys, they were there, you know, and a bunch of the new great climbers, Shipley and, and Bridwell and all those guys were there. And so that's where we hung out. And then we dispersed and went about our business. But then they changed the deli. They changed the hour. So we, it closed at five. And mm -hmm. so by the time you were done with your climbing, went to have a beer or whatever, it was closed. So it moved into the parking lot at Camp Four. That became the new center of the universe. But then they cracked down on climbers because the park service has not always been so friendly, say the mm -hmm. least. And so they didn't want us in there. They said, well, what are you people doing here? No, no, no. They hung around. So then it got moved over to the parking lot at the lodge. They sure as hell didn't want us there. And so what, where are we going to meet? Where do you meet? Then it became the El Cap Bridge. And that became sort of an icon of Yosemite climbing. Or, hey, I'll see you at the bridge, you know. And where are you guys going? Oh, we're going to go down to the bridge and hang out. And then they started doing that. On an off day, you'd have 15 or 20 people bring a little chair, sit around on the railing or, or right, in the, right on the sidewalk there that goes across the bridge. And people start hanging out. And, and when they started hanging out, I would just take a random picture or two every now and then, the bridge crew, right? Mm. And, and so that's where you met other climbers. It wasn't Camp 4 anymore. It wasn't the Degnans. It was at the El Cap Bridge. And it was a great scene because you're allowed to drink in Yosemite, right? <laughs> yeah. You can have an open container. You can sit back there and watch the guys with the, through the binoculars. I set up a couple of telescopes so that they wouldn't constantly be coming up to me Oh, Tom, listen, can I look through your camera? I don't want people looking through my camera. Boom, yeah. For some reason, they like to mash their eye on it. <laughs> 40 people who put their eye trying to look through that viewfinder, it affects my eyes. <laughs> if somebody has pink eye or some disease, I'm shooting through that. So I don't want them doing that. So I set up two of my own telescopes. And then we had a, a rush of tourists, what I call the Turons. <laughs> the Turons started coming in mass. And then suddenly 20 or 30 people would, their cars would be parsing and they'd walk up. Hey, what are you doing there, fella? It was, oh my God, this again, <laughs> you know? So what I ended up doing to protect myself was, okay, there'd be 20 people, Turans, gather around here. Listen, I want to talk to you about something. And because they started asking all those questions, oh, well, how do they get the ropes up there so the climbers can actually climb up it, you know? And of course, there you have all any question you would think of the most obscene, even they would ask, right? And so I, you know, and then another somebody else wasn't paying attention. Well, how do they do that? So I said, okay, gather around. So suddenly, I, I was a, I was a physics and algebra teacher for thirty years, mm. so and I knew how to teach, right? And I'd give them a five minute talk. I had cams and pins because they thought it was all grappling hooks. Oh, they uh, throw those grappling hooks up. I mean. It's obscene. The stuff they thought it was ridiculous, right? So then I'd give them a five-minute lecture on how it's done, who first did it, how long it takes, so forth. And of course, they'd all say, ah, it's so dangerous up there. I can't believe they do that. They must be crazy. And of course, the guys and the girls hanging around, we sort of had a little deal where they knew what to, they knew what was about to happen. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, these guys are highly trained up there. There's just somebody off the street doesn't go up there. You have to be very highly trained. And so I, I would say, well, you have a greater chance of being killed driving home than they do on the cliff. 
And so right away, some people say, oh, yes, ma'am, you've got to be real careful driving home. It's, yes, ma'am, you, you'd really better watch it driving home. It's so dangerous, you know, just to kind of turn the turn it on to them. Okay. So we got a, we got a kick out of doing that. <laughs> and then because of the spiel, because of the little five minute thing, everybody else, all the guys suddenly knew all about the history of El Cap, right? Because mm -hmm. they're sitting there drinking or whatever they were doing, talking, and they hear this every, all the time. So uh, the, the tourists would come up occasionally and you'd see one of these, uh, they come up and they say, um, well, uh, you seem to know a lot about this. Have you climbed it yourself? And I'd say, well, yes, ma'am, I have climbed it. Yes, I've climbed it five times. <laughs> and then, but then when it got to be later in the day, when you've gone through the routine so much, I'd say, but Dave over here, he's done it 10 times. <laughs> and then Dave would say, well, Aaron's done it. 23 times, you know, and so we'd pass these people, <laughs> whoever was the guy it stopped on had to give the spiel, right? So we had a great time, a lot of camaraderie. And of course, when you're sitting there and you're a climber, if you're taking the day off and everybody takes a day off, right? For whatever reason, you tell your stories, you know? Mm. So you hear all these stories. The Huber brothers used to hang out there all the time when they were working on the nose record and Zodiac and some of the free climbs. So they'd tell their stories. And then uh, Sloan and McNamara and those guys, they'd tell their stories. And even Tom Frost showed up one day, right? Just walked up. I knew Tom from the old days. And so uh, he'd come up and sit down in a chair. And, hey, Tom, what's going on? You know, tell us a story. And Tom would tell us a story. So, so that became the center, the new center of the universe. And I referred to it since the bridge is the center, well, I was, I was, had my little thing going. So that was the epicenter of the center, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how all that started and how the bridge started. I remember Thomas Huber came up and he said, you know, when we were all, you know, having a great time, he'd say, uh, he came up and said, wow, Tom, you created this whole thing just, you know, out of the air. And, and he, he, where else do you go? He, of course, Yosemite's, El Cap is so convenient. You don't have to hike in for six hours to get there. Right. So 10 minutes away and suddenly there's this big scene and everybody, you know, if the climber comes back, if it's the walk of shame, say, oh man, dude, what happened? You know, and hey, would you like a cold beer? Hey, pop a cold beer for them. And they'd sit down and they'd tell their story, you know, their mm -hmm. story of woe. Or Huber Brothers came back and they'd done Zodiac and they sat up on the rail of the bridge and had a beer and told us how it was, you know, of course I'd photograph the whole climb, but, but, uh, so the, all of these different stories from all over the world came in, you know, so that's kind of how the bridge scene got started. And that was a direct result of the bridge scene was trying to stay alive there and not have to keep saying the same thing all the time. So that led to the El Cap report. And yeah, so there's more history of that, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, I tend to over talk. No, no, it's fine. I've, I've lived alone for 30 years. I have this cool house, <laughs> small cabin in the mountains. And so I don't get to talk much. <laughs> so I, I overdo it. So if I talk too much, you tell me. No, I love the details. And I love the story about basically seems like you crafted like all of this innovation, honestly, like of the Yosemite climbing scene the El Cap report. And it's because you just like didn't want to be annoyed anymore. And I, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I got tired of talking to all these people over and over and over and over. And that was the hard part about the report. I mean, about the bridge scene, because after a while, the 
um, Ken, yeah, well, the Park Service started, you know, I say, well, hey, where are you staying, Mr. Evans? You know, how can how can you be here for so long? You know, and I sort of I said, well, I'm staying uh, here and there, you know, out and about, you know. And so so they started uh, kind of, you know, making it making it difficult for me. Mm. They, they say, well, we've seen you here every day. Where are you staying? There's a limit to how long you can stay in the park and blah, blah, blah. So I told my woes to Ken Yeager. I said, Kenny, these guys are on my back, you know. He said, huh, well, let's see what I can do about that. And so uh, he he went away and came back a few days later and said, okay, listen, I got this idea. Why don't we do this? I talked to the Conservancy, right? And they're willing to sponsor what, what we're going to call the Ask a Climber program, right? Mm. And you are going to be given that job, right? And since they are the main supporter of Yosemite, millions of dollars a year, you're going to get to stay in Camp 4 in a campsite, right? So you can be here legally. You can stay as long as you want. And so, and basically what the, what the Ask a Climber program was exactly what I was doing for five years for nothing. You know, just so suddenly, and they said, this is the kicker. He said, hey, guess what, man? We're going to give you 120 bucks a day to do it, right? And you get discount in the cafeteria. You get free camping. I'll go for that, you know, like what could be wrong with that? So so that's how the Ask a Climber program came in, which is one of the two most popular programs in the entire park, right? Mm. What people would do, they come up to me when I was doing my thing, you know, and they would say, after the, after the spiel, and I let them look through the scope, I always had it on something, you know, and they say, you know what, this is the most interesting thing we've seen in the park in this visit. This is amazing. We always, we went by here, we always wondered, and we looked at the cliff, we couldn't see the climbers. Well, of course you couldn't see them, they're little dots, right? <laughs> but now we can see them up close, and now we understand what's actually going on. You know, I had a couple of friends and I even made a little display where I had two boards put together and I'd stick this friend up in there and I had that anchored to the bridge rail. And they say, well, that doesn't look very solid. And I'd say, oh, grab that little piece of nylon there, pull it out, pull that out. And they would just, you know, and they couldn't pull it out. And I said, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so that was such a popular program. So then they, that's what the Ask a Climber program did, except they paid us, right? And I didn't want to do that. I was going to photograph, but you had to do four hours, right? And I went from 10 to two is when my hours were. Well, I was there anyway, right? So at, at, at nine o'clock when I got there, if somebody walked up, well, I'm going to talk to them, right? And if it was past two and it's now four o'clock and somebody comes up, I'm going to talk to them. I'm there anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So I did it the whole day, right? But then to give me a break, from having to, you know, constantly talk to people while I was photographing, they said, well, um, you, if you want to hire an assistant, you know, oh, an assistant, this is getting even better. Right. And so the deal was I had uh, Dave Turner or Eric Sloan did it. Sometimes a random guy would do it, but um, they got the money for that day. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'd work five days and Sloan would do two days or maybe Dave Turner would come in and do a day. Somebody who was, you know, very knowledgeable. We had to be very knowledgeable about it. And so uh, so that's how the Ask a Climber got in there. Basically, you keep me in the park legally mm -hmm. because, because several reasons. The main one was 
what's the greatest climbing shot in the world, right? All of those climbers, if I left, in fact, people would say, is Tom here yet? When's Tom coming, right? Well, we're not going to start climbing until Tom's here because the deal was if Tom didn't take your picture, you didn't do it. <laughs> and since I was such a straightforward, honest guy, I wasn't going to lie about it, you know? So I yeah. just, you know, so yeah, we want Tom to tell our story because he may tell it a little humorously or, you know, a little fun, but he's going to tell it like it is. And he knows what's going on, right? Because nobody, nobody knows that cliff like I do, right? Well, I won't say that anymore. Sloan does because he wrote four guidebooks and Chris McNamara knew it better too. But as far as somebody you can just walk up to and talk, I did that every day for years. I mean, you know, three months of the year. So I photog- I knew where the roots were, you know, what the problem was. I could predict things I, like the tourists would come up and say, some guy was climbing some pitch, you know, and they were looking through the scope. And, and I'd say, yeah, that guy's having some trouble. He's going to fall off in a couple seconds. Off the guy comes. How did you know that? You know, because, well, we as climbers know, you see the guy's legs start vibrating and he's looking kind of sketchy. You know, he's going to fall off. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, I was wondering, like, obviously, to some extent, you know, you can recognize a lot of people because you're in the know with the community. But do some people like maybe people who are trying to do their first LCAP climb show up and they're like, hey, Tom, this is my name. This is my partner's name. If you do take photos of us, <laughs> like that sort of thing, like do people give you information like that ahead of time? Many do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many do. Because they know that. And of course, part of the deal was I take everybody who's up there unless you don't want to be taken and mm-hmm. you don't want to be reported on. And mm-hmm. I had some people who didn't want. There was a couple of women, very good climbers, excellent climbers, and they just didn't want to be photographed. They didn't want to be mentioned. And I say, just come by or send me an email. You know, I'm not interested in this or all I want is photographs. I don't want to be mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or I want to be mentioned, you know. And so I said, whatever you want, I'll do. So it wasn't like I was forcing people to be. But I photographed everybody who was up there. And if I didn't know who they were, I photographed them anyway. And many times I never saw them again. Mm-hmm. Right? So not all of my many of my photographs are left now with digital, they're on a hard drive somewhere. I have no idea who they are, mm. but I do get, I got a request the other day. Uh, this, I did, this person did the nose in, in uh, 2007. Oh, I did the nose in 2007. You wouldn't still happen to have a photograph of me. And I just say, what was the date? What were you wearing? What kind of bags? Tell me your bags. You know, were there two Metolius and a blue, you know, orange poop bag? What were your bags? What were the dates? And okay, I got 30 shots of you. Really? You got shots of me? I said, yeah. (laughs) So I keep them all on a hard drive. I have two two big hard drives and a bunch of small ones. And everything I take goes on the hard drives by date and climb. So you tell me the route, tell me the date, tell me what you look like. I'll drop box them to you, no problem. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how that works. So yeah, I had, uh, and it's funny because I was in the calf one morning. In the mornings in the calf, I get there at 6.30 in the morning and I stayed at nine, right? And that way guys can come over from camp four and if they want their pictures, that's a good time to get them, right? Mm -hmm. Bring me a little drive of some kind and I'll take them off the computer and put them on there. Well, I had, uh, and so people come in, uh, climbers. So I had four guys come up to me one time sitting at my little desk. I had my own little table, I guess. It's Tom's table, but it's not marked in any way, right? So if I come in and somebody's sitting there, somebody say, hey, 
get up. That's Tom's table. Because <laughs> the electricity is right there. The most valuable thing in Yosemite is electricity, right? And the law at the cafeteria, there's a box of four, there's two, a socket over there, and there's one way on the other side, and that's it. So mm-hmm. I'm sitting next to the junction box with four plugs, right? And I have a, you know, a big, uh, what do they call those things you plug in to? But anyway, yeah, an extension kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, these four guys come up. Say, oh, Tom, you take a picture. And I said, yeah, I got your picture probably. What did you do? And Oh, we did this and that. And I said, where are you guys from? He said, ah, we're from Russia. I said, Russia? Why in the world did you come all the way here to Yosemite to climb? I mean, you could be climbing in Russia or the Alps. He said, they kind of looked at each other and laughed. They said, because of you, your pictures. We saw your pictures so much and we had to come, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty flattering. You know? <laughs> But that's how far that the reach of this thing is. And mm. I would have never predicted that, you know. So I get a lot of foreign climbers. And basically, like you mentioned, the new people. Well, yeah, we want to do and I, and I always talk to new people. And I say, what if, have you paid your dues? You know, they might be thinking, oh, we have to pay for this? Or, you know, how much is it? <laughs> and I said, well, you've got a nice new haul bag and you got a great rack and all that. You have to climb the south face of the column. Have you done the prow or the leaning tower? Have you done the northwest face of Half Dome? And nowadays, people are so, I don't know what you'd call it, but they just, they want to do El Cap, right? And they don't want to pay their dues. Mm-hmm. And so I'll tell them, I'll say, oh, they said, well, no, but uh, we did uh, Serenity Crack and and we did the Grack. I said, oh, yeah, great little short free climbs, you know. I said, well, you really should pay your dues, but I'll give you some advice. And, and well, I, I tell them too, half of the people that start up don't make it. Half of the people that start up El Cap don't finish, right? Mm-hmm. And they're gone by the second day, most of them, right? And, and, and I say, you know why? I say to them, I tell them, you know why they don't make it? I, I tell them, I've never seen anybody climb the nose who couldn't figure out the next gear placement. It's never the gear placements. It's your logistics, right? Mm. Can you haul the bag efficiently? Can you quick? Can you quickly move through your aid slings if you're going to aid it? And if they're first timers, unless they're super duper Euro boys or somebody from Colorado, they're not, or you know, many number of places now, they're not going to, they're not going to know all that, right? And so, so I tell them, and I, I give a few things. I say, okay, number one, when you're when you're aid climbing, immediately go into your highest rung on the ladder. I see people standing in the third rung looking up there and looking up there and talking to their buddy. And then they move into the second rung. And they look back up and they look around. I say, immediately go as high as you can, because that's where the placement's going to be. Mm. None of the experienced climbers are standing in their third rung. Right? <laughs> when they're place, making that placement that by now is a bomber placement, they're in their top rung. So do that. Another thing I would say is, uh, Learn how to tie, if you don't know, learn how to tie the bag on so you don't have to lift it off and unclip it, right? So many people you hear on the wind, can't get the bag off the anchor, man, because they don't know you just pull, you know, do it a certain way, you know? And so uh, I give them little tips of advice like that. And I tell and I tell them, uh, you're going to have a bad pitch. There's going to be a pitch that you do that's I mean, I saw the likes of some of the famous old guys take four hours to do the traverse pitch on the leaning tower. 
and they just, they blew the pitch for whatever. It just wasn't working for them. And I say, don't bail right away. You can make up for that. Just say, oh, had a bad pitch. Okay, we'll make up for it later. Don't get discouraged. You've come all the way from Russia, you know, with all your bags. You spent a ton of money and you're on the fourth pitch and you're going to stop. You're going to bail because you had a bad pitch. No, don't do that. Relax. Give yourself a little credit. You just got to get through it and keep moving, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's several other things I tell them. They're little tips and so forth. But, and they end up bailing anyway. And so we give them, we give them, they do the walk of shame. Turns out when you come from El Cap, when you do it and you've done it and you come walking, if you come walking from the West with your bags and everything, you didn't do the descent. <laughs> and we're doing the walk of shame, right? And the walk of shame takes you right across the bridge in front of the whole crew who's sitting there smoking a cigarette and having a beer. They come from the other direction, though. They did it, right? Mm. So you can tell, right, just by looking at where they come from. Hey, what did you do? Oh, man, you made it. Everybody, you know, and all the crew were very supportive. Somebody's not doing well, we say, maybe make a few jokes about it. We always like to say, if you made it, if you did it, You've got one day of glory. Come to the bridge. We'll give you a beer. You can have the best chair. You can tell us your story. You'll get all those attaboys and attagirl, and you're the king, you know. You're, you're, the, you're the man for that day. Everybody, if you bail, you got two weeks of getting shit from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's needling you for two weeks. So that's another incentive to get it done. So For sure. <laughs> but uh, we still have a high bail rate because... People, uh, they don't want to do the, they don't want to do the work. They want to just go up and do the climb. You know, how hard can it be? Look at the topo, C1, 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 five, six, five, eight. Come on. It's nothing, right? And yet they haven't learned, they haven't paid their dues and learned to move efficiently through their swings. So. Yeah, seriously. I've, I've never big wall climbed, but I've heard that the logistics are a very significant part of the the climbing and I've had a friend describe them at, describe big wall climbing as moving furniture, which I think is a funny. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people it's uh, especially the tourists to say, what's it like up there? I said it's 90% brutal, hard physical labor and 10% fun. And the fun is when you're down here having a beer talking about it. Right. Exactly. It's a lot of work, you know, and if you're motivated, you know, it's great. And if you have really super good climbers and, the nose, of course, and lurking fear, the easiest routes, they get a lot of traffic. So, you know, if you're really good, you can breeze up the nose. You know, people do the nose in a day uh, pretty commonly. I'd say 15, 20% will do the nose in a day, right? Mm-hmm. So those people, they don't have to worry about logistics. That's one of the things about being a fast free climber and knowing your gear. That's another thing I tell them that I didn't mention a moment ago. One of the reasons you go on the grade fives, right? You pay your dues is so you'll learn your gear. Mm. A free climber, how many pieces of gear do they place on a pitch? You know, six or seven, eight, maybe 10. On an aid pitch, you're placing 30 pieces of gear, right? Mm. And so if you don't know, if you have to look up there and say, oh, maybe this will work. No. How How about this one? Maybe if you have to do that, boy, the clock just spins when you're doing that. It's, you're just spinning your wheels. So I tell them, you pay your dues. Part of the benefits of paying your dues, you're going to learn your gear. And so when you look up at that placement, you should be able to hit it with the right piece of gear 95% of the time. And if you can't, this business about taking it and putting it back on your rack, that's when you fumble and the gear goes to the deck. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you, it, you think it's clipped. 
but you un, you unclip something and you reach to get it off and it slides off the beaner and drops away. Mm. So you want to handle the gear as little as possible. So you need, that's part of paying your dues. So if you can handle the gear, stand in the top runs, know how to get the bag off the, off the anchor and know how to belay. And my cardinal rule is, and I see it every day on El Cap, my cardinal rule is you see people up there, they come up to the belay and they spend 30 minutes at the belay standing next to each other. I don't know what the hell they're doing, but they're there. And 30 minutes later, and then they come back, oh, we were too slow. And I said, yeah, you know why? You know why? I said, the cardinal rule is when your partner comes up, right, they've cleaned the gear. All that gear should be racked in order of size. You just don't clippity clip, 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 put it anywhere. It's all racked. So when you, when the next guy's ready to go, you grab that gear, clink, clink, right? So the new leader has five minutes to get out of the belay. That's all you got at the belay. Give them a drink, give them a candy bar, smack them on the ass, and you're gone, right? If you lose half an hour of every pitch and you're doing 10 pitches that day, how many hours have you lost? Yeah. Five hours. You spent five hours standing around in the middle of the day doing nothing useful. It's mm. not advancing you at all. Five minutes. So that's what I tell everybody. And you should, any good climber knows that. Right. So obviously you've been around for some really historical ascents and you've captured those ascents on camera. Um, I'm interested, which of those stand out to you? Because there's definitely a couple that definitely stand out to me that I perused the El Cap report and I was like, wow, this is this historical moment in action. That's so cool. But I'm interested in like, what are you most proud of having caught on camera? Well, it's not a matter of being proud of it. I just happen to be there, right? And so sometimes they're great, great events are going and I don't even know what's going on. Right. The other day, um, uh, Nick Eamon did the nose, soloed the nose in, in four hours and 39 minutes. Right. Solo, right. Rope solo. The record Alex Honnold was, was a uh, 549. Right. So this guy knocked an hour off of Honnold's solo record. Right? Yeah. And this isn't free solo now, as you, you understand, mm -hmm. this is rope solo. But when you're Alex Honnold or Nick Eamon, you third class a lot of it. You don't, mm -hmm. you know, you just climb it, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, Han, I think Eamon used to actually use the rope for a belay on three pitches. Mm -hmm. The rest of it, he just climbed untethered, right? Yeah. He had a, he had a uh, 70 feet of rope, right? That was it. Yeah. 70 foot rope. So when you go up there solo with 70 feet of rope, you ain't repelling off, honey. You know, you only got 70 feet of rope. So mm -hmm. he's going, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when Honnold did it, and it was back in 15, Honnold did it. By, he came by one day looking very fresh and young, had an apple. Hey, I said, well, where are you going? I'm going to go solo the nose. So I said, oh, cool. I'll get some shots. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He walked off kind of blasé. So I looked back up and there he is on Pancake Flake with his pack on and a rope coiled around, just free soloing that. So that's how they get that kind of record. Right. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even know Nick was going for the record. I, I picked him up. He was at the Jardine Traverse, which is about 11, 12 pitches up. I said, what the hell is that guy doing? Where's his, where's his partner? I saw a rope hanging down, but I couldn't find his damn partner. Hey, look at this guy up here. You see his partner? Of course, it soon occurred to me. There is no partner, right? He was just, he had a 70 foot rope tied to him that just hung down and he climbed along. So if he needed it, he had it already out. Yeah. So anyway, so that just recently happened this last season. So that was kind of an unexpected one. And that ended up getting a lot of publicity. So that was cool to, to catch that. And of course, the Dawn Wall and, uh, you know, the Huber brothers, Free and Zodiac and other things. And 
and people free in the nose. All of that stuff is is really interesting to me. And the, one of the most interesting parts is to see these people because they don't. A lot of these people I'd never met Nick before. Nick McNeeman. Mm-hmm. I'd never met him. He knew me because everybody knows me because I'm the one guy who's at the center of this wheel and everybody wants a piece of me, you know, something I can do for you. Mm-hmm. If I couldn't do anything for you, you wouldn't give me the time of day. And so uh, anyway, so that was great. Uh, the Don Wall was probably the height of my photography career, I guess, because everybody came to me, all the news agencies and everything. When the Dawn Wall started, the movie crew who actually did the film of the Dawn Wall, mm-hmm. we were out there and there's just a few of us. And then um, what's his face came up, John Branch from the New York Times mm-hmm. wandered up one afternoon. It's just getting dark. The uh, Tommy and Kevin had been climbing three days. You know, they'd done several pitches, not the real meat of the climb. And he comes up sort of out of the nowhere. Hey, your name Tom? I said, yeah. Everybody said I need to talk to you. Talk away. You know, <laughs> he interviewed me for about an hour. And the next day, that was on the front page with a picture of the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. And the only thing mentioned was my my website. Tom Evans at LCAP Report. Da 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 da. And so everybody, and once it's on the front of the New York Times, it exploded, right? Mm-hmm. And so the next day, I was people were contacting me from all over the world. Can we get an interview? Can you talk to these guys? Da, 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 da. So I was the guy that managed all the all of the publicity for that. And it was enormous, right? Not only did I do all of that and photograph the climb, I wrote the El Cap report every night also. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it, I'd get, we'd get done, I'd had dinner and maybe, and I'd do images. And then I talked to these people on the phone from Kathmandu or wherever they wanted from. And then by four in the morning, I, I had done the report and I went to I went to sleep for two hours. So I and then and I started all over again. So it was a big, huge thing. But I got control of the whole event. And so and and I told my I was being sponsored by that time uh, at that time by Adidas. And I told Adidas, I said, hey, you better be ready because this is going to explode. And they kind of brushed me off. You know, oh well, you know, just some guys. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand what's going to happen here. I talked to people. This is going to be a big deal. And so they said, okay. And so after that, it was like, it was un- unbelievable, really. So I sort of, I was the guy when the newspaper people, they would, or the video people, anybody, the media, when they came to me, they didn't know climbing, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had to tell them. But, uh, but imagine if I hadn't been there and some yahoo was standing there with a the camera. I mean, they could be throwing grappling hooks for all he knew. Right. And I knew exactly what it was and how hard it was. And I could explain it well enough so people could understand it. So they all came to me. So my idea was, okay, this is about being tenacious, being determined. It's about your willpower. It's about the team helping each other through difficult times. So I cast it in that light, you know, and other people are saying, well, it's a very dangerous, difficult. I said, it's not that dangerous. Mm. It's so difficult that only the best climbers in the world would, could even attempt it, you know? And, and I said, and to do that, you have to have experience. You have to have tenacity. Your fingers are bleeding. You're exhausted. You've been on the, you've been sleeping on a portal edge 15 days straight, you know? And so I tried to turn it into a thing about your character and your integrity and, and what you did. And you didn't cheat by grabbing a sling, you know, mm. you did it. And you know, you know, how I knew they did it. 
because I photographed every one of them, you know? So that's another thing about me being there, you know, very common thing. Hey man, don't use a stick. Tom's going to get your picture and put it on the report, you know? Stick of the day, I called it. Stick of the day. And then there was bail of the day and there was dumb move of the day and all of these things of the day that little funny things that were lighthearted, but yeah, a little jab in there, you know, so. Keeping people honest. Yeah. And, and a lot of the... It turns out because the position I held there, I made a lot of friends. So a lot of American climbers, a lot of the climbers that we all know now who've gotten publicity, I know those guys, right? And so that gave that gave me an even better insight. It wasn't like I was just some guy out in the woods taking pictures and writing about it. I knew those guys, which unfortunately, when people were killed, you know, or, mm. or lost their lives. It wasn't like, you know, a normal person might know two or three of those guys, guys or girls who were killed. I knew them all. I knew all 30 of them. They were my friends, right? They would come and we'd talk and we'd hang at the bridge for a day. They'd get their shots, you know, they were my friends. And so that deeply affected me, people getting hurt or killed. Uh, I still whew, I shudder to think about it, the good people I've seen die in the sport. So that was the big downside. For several years, I've had, I had nightmares about not them, but me, because I climbed it, you know, me being up on the rock and, and suddenly the ledge is giving way and I'm, and I'm you know, what are we going to do? And I wake up in a sweat. Oh, my God. Because I saw people hanging upside down dead on the cliff. And I saw those terrible mm -hmm. things. And another thing was I voluntarily give the photo, I voluntarily photograph all the rescues so the park service can come to me. And I, I told them right from the very start, hey, I'll photograph these rescues for you. I won't charge you anything for the photographs. You know, we need to find out what happened so mm -hmm. we can maybe prevent it again. Mm -hmm. And so every rescue I photographed it and I took a picture no matter what, every two to three minutes, I took a picture, even if it wasn't word climbing worthy. That gave you a timeline if you're a park service. You say, oh, the helicopter didn't come for an hour and a half. Well, gee, we need to speed that up a little bit. Our first guy didn't get there for 82 minutes, you know. So they use those to analyze the rescues to make themselves better. So when if somebody was hanging up there dead, I took the picture every, every three minutes, every mm -hmm. four minutes. So the timeline would be complete. And so that wears on you. Yeah. I mean, you know, a normal. And, and guess what? I knew those guys. They're my friends are hanging up there. Mm -hmm. So that's the downside of it. You know, there's a lot of fun and da da da, but there's a dark side to climbing. Yeah, I was wondering about those unique challenges of reporting on accidents, if you if you had any other thoughts on that, but also just wondering, were there any in particular that were particularly complicated or left a really big impression on you? Any what? Accidents. Well, they all do, but yeah. um, yes. And uh, one in particular, a guy, a guy had a cam is on the mirror. Guy had a cam behind a flake way up high, 800 feet from the top, stood on the cam, flake came out, cut his rope, right? Cut his lead line, gone. He had a static line clipped on the back of his harness that was for the haul line, right? He falls past his partner, 200 feet, 220 feet, comes to the end of the rope. It's a static rope. Rope killed him, crushed him, right? Mm -hmm. And so I always told people, I said, don't use a static line to haul with. 
Hmm. These other, some of these old guys, you know, who are good at it, they're not going to do that and make a big mistake. But I say, always have a dynamic line for your haul line and clip it into the back of your harness on that 4,000 pound test loop. And if everything goes to hell, you've got a reserve, hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. your reserve parachute, so to speak. And if he had had that, he would have, he fell through the air. Okay. He wouldn't have stopped in four feet. He would have gone 40 feet and bounced and done it. And he'd have walked away from it. Mm-hmm. And I still have guys who, nope, man, I'm taking a static line. It's easier to haul. Mm-hmm. And it's really not easy. It, in a way, it's easier. But of course, when you start hauling, the bag doesn't move because the line is stretching. You're yeah. taking the stitch out of the line, right? Mm-hmm. And so by the time you get, so that you really got the weight on it, it's not much difference in the effort you have to put in for that bag to move as one on a static line to move. It just moves a few minutes earlier. Mm. And so these guys say, oh, it's worth the energy. And I say, you're going to save a little bit of energy and throw away your reserve chute? Mm. Come on, man. That doesn't make sense. So that's what came out of that accident. Everybody suddenly got a whole refresher course in what it means to be tied into a static line. Mm. So obviously you've been documenting climbing for in El- in Yosemite on El Cap for decades now, right? So you have must have heard, I mean, you said kind of like technology wasn't your thing, but you've rolled with it. You started a website. Um, have you heard how maybe other climbers talk about the way social media has come into the play? Do you feel like you hear from climbers these days? Oh, we got to like make sure this, like kind of gets attention from the bigger crowd or is it still kind of an emphasis of like, if it gets like reported on in the in the circles that matter, that's what's most important. Well, I'm the first guy in the, in that line, right? Because they want to be on the El Cap report. In fact, I've had guys who got a bail of the day, right? I, I had one guy, famous climber now. He's a sketchy guy, but anyways, famous guy. And he came and and he went over to the west side and it was in the fall and it turned out to be really rainy. And finally, he just gave up, you know, and came by and he said, ah, Tom, I got blanked. I, I didn't get anything done and I'm not going to be in the LCAP report. Listen, could you give me bail of the day so at least I'll be in the report? You know, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> he wanted bail of the day. You know. Yeah, unfortunately, we have a group of people now who have decided that they want to be famous for climbing LCAP. They're the oldest this or the youngest kid or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And what they do, because El Cap, you have to understand, climbing El Cap is like a badge of honor, right? You have demonstrated that you can haul the bag, you can lead the pitches, you can do everything that's necessary in a quick, efficient way that you can actually climb this cliff, right? And so when you say, I climbed El Cap, to the general public, that means something, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've had some parents and some people who have hired guides, who fix lines, and all they do is Jumar up the fixed line, and they say, I'm the oldest Canadian to ever climb El Capitan. It's a world record. And you see them on CNN, and, mm-hmm. and they're in the magazines, especially with these kids. Unfortunately, we've had a, what I call the kitty climbs. We've had three or four of those where a seven-year-old is going up El Cap, and the parents are there, of course, saying, well, they did pre-spray. They said, oh, well, my kid is one of the greatest climbers in the world. And they, they feed this line of bull to the media. 
And they say, wow, and they're, they're only seven years old. Yeah, he's only seven and, and he's going to climb El Cap. And okay, we're going to start in three days and da, da, da. Would you like to interview us? Oh yeah, they'll interview you. And so mommy and daddy get to stand next to their little kid who's looking around and what? <laughs> you know, what I got to do? Got to jug that line. And so they, so then it says seven-year-old conquers El Capitan, right? I saw that in the, what's the big, big paper in London? The Times? Anyway, one of those, so-and-so child climbs El Capitan. Look out, Honold. Watch out, Caldwell. <laughs> you know, and what did the kid do? The kid had two guides who hauled the bag, did everything, set him up. They put the Jumars on. One guy, one guy climbed. The next guy was there with the kid. And the kid got up and Jumard. And they Jumard the whole thing. And suddenly, this is the youngest person to ever climb El Capitan. Mm. And they don't know how to climb. Mm. But now they're the youngest person. You see them. You see them on CNN or these other things. So, so that unfortunately, and we've had older people. I who was the first this to climb, and one of them I photographed the whole climb. They never led a pitch, never hauled a bag, never did anything. All mm. they did was two more up the rope, right? Which you can teach somebody to do. The climbing school does it all the time. Nothing wrong mm. with having a guide. There's nothing wrong with jumaring up El Cap. You just don't say that you set a world record and you're a great climber because that's what you did. But mm -hmm. we have people who are what I call grifting off of El Cap's reputation to make themselves famous on social media. And that's the bone I have to pick with these people. And I get really rude about it. When I see these people, they hear about it. Mm -hmm. right? You know, if you don't want the truth, don't talk to me. You want to sugarcoat it, get a donut, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Mm -mm. I, I think it's obscene to, to take a second grader and stick him on a cliff where over 30 people, full strength, unknowledgeable climbers have been killed on that rock. And you're sticking a second grader up there. That's child abuse. That's child endangerment. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and it, what's what second grader says, gee, mom, I'd like to climb El Cap. You think we could hire some guides? We could do this. They could haul the bags. Da, 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 da. It's not the kid's idea. Right. Yeah. And to me, what you do in that case is you said, okay, Billy, yeah, well, we're going to train you up. We're going to go to the crag. We're going to learn how to do this. And by the time you get to be 14 or 15, you'll really know what you're doing and you can actually climb El Capitan and be proud of it, mm. right? That's what you should do. Right. You should include. And we've had guys, Connor Hershen's a perfect example of that, mm -hmm. right? Climbed El Cap free at 15, right? So you didn't hear Jim saying, oh, yeah, Connor, we jugged up at El Cap, da, da, da. Uh -uh. He has integrity, mm. and that's mm -hmm. another matter. Unfortunately, we have no rules in climbing, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. But we have one rule, and that tell us what you did, tell us how you did it. That's great. We want to know. But if mm. you say, oh, I climbed El Cap, you don't say, oh, well, I jugged all these fixed lines, and da, 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 I didn't do anything, you know. Mm -hmm. no, they don't do that. They say, this is the greatest little climber. And they look at that little climber, and they stand there next to me, mommy and daddy. Or the old person who says, I'm the oldest person to ever climb El Cap. Wake me up when this is over. You know? <laughs> so we, we've had a, many people, unfortunately, probably 10 or 15 people who've used that mm. to be more famous on social media. So it is a problem and there's just nothing you can do about it. And unfortunately, nobody's willing to call these people out except old Tom. <laughs> I don't let him get away with that shit, man. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to degrade the value of El Capitan by those grifters 
making money off of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we have climbing writers who will write that up just so they can get paid for that. Mm-hmm. People who are knowledgeable climbers will write that up. And, and I talk to them. I say, hey, what are you doing? This isn't climbing. Well, man, you know, it's a matter of opinion, dude. It's not a matter of opinion, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, social media has a big influence. And then we have now part of the thing about the LCAP report. It's not so um, so sought as it once was because, hey, they can go on social media right from the cliff. Mm-hmm. In fact, instead of looking at the LCAP report, you'll have the Joe report. Oh, yeah, this is our second day on Mescalito. He's got the can, you know, he's got the phone and his videos and. And yeah, so that that has relieved me of some burden that I used to have when I first started. Was I'd very carefully look at the cliff. I had several people. Guy fell and hit a ledge, was bleeding out, and I called it into the park service mm. before cell phones. Now you rarely see something up. I rarely see something up there that hasn't already been nine one one. You know, so that's a good thing. They have, mm-hmm. and I tell them everybody, take your phone up there, take it up, and don't frivolously waste the power have that and i've had people say no man i'm not taking that up there that that gets between me and the rock having the phone there i said how does having a phone in the bottom of the bag make any difference if you're not going to use it except in an emergency Mm. well man that's not the way i roll at least you know you know Mm -hmm. okay sorry no i'm so glad i asked because i didn't really know about that perspective but that conversation actually reminded me of something that i forgot to like write down as a question but I know that after talking to Jesse McGahey, the head climbing ranger, that kind of one of the evolving conversations right now is, you know, mm-hmm. that the, the climbing rangers are worried a little bit about the number of fixed lines that get left up and a lot of gear being stashed and maybe kind of like reprioritizing the ethics of ground up. Do you kind of have a perspective on this? Well, I tell you what, the way it is, is not a new crop, but a relatively new crop of climbers who want to free climb El Cap, right? That's what they want to do. And they're not good enough to go ground up, right? I mean, who is? You know, not many people are, but some are, you know, some are, but not many. So they want to do this really bad. They're sponsored climbers, maybe, right? So they're, you know, German climber, French climber, American climber, whatever, they're sponsored. And so they got to come up with a little dog and pony show every now and then to keep their keep their deal. So what they will do is they'll say, okay, I want to do free rider because that's the easiest climb of the free climbs on El Cap, free rider. And it's not too bad. It's 10 minutes from the road. You can start up it. But up in the middle and at the top, that's where the difficulty is. So they want to work it like a sport climb. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a big sport climb. And so one day they'll haul up, they'll haul up three days worth of food and water, kit, everything, up 15 pitches to the alcove right below El Cap Spire, which is a third of the way up, maybe a little more like getting close to halfway up, and they'll stash that gear there. And then they'll rappel off, right? Or they'll work They'll work for a couple of days. They're not going to the top. They're going to work three pitches, right? They're going to dial those in, get those wired, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'll come back down, take a rest, get their hands back in, go up the fixed lines, fixed lines, <laughs> 800 feet. There's fixed lines there because they, the Park Service lets us have those lines there, the fixed lines they're called. And that's because if people are coming down off of various climbs and they're bailing, there these lines are. They don't they don't have to call the park service and say, come and get us. We're on we're up on Mammoth Terrace and we, we don't want to get down. We're afraid to get in. my rope got stuck. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about that. So all these people go up and down those lines. And the lines get replaced every now and then. 
because people see these big burrs and knots. I'll put one of my old ropes up there, right? So those are maintained by climbers, pretty much. Park service, that's against the rules. 24 hours is all you got for a fixed mm-hmm. line. But they ignore the rules. They only ignore their own rules because people use those lines all the time. It's a matter of safety. And the lines, when you come down off the top, there's 500 feet of rappelling you have to do to get to get down, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to come down the east ledges, you've got to repel three repels or four repels. Now, I'm not sure which it is. It's been a while. So those lines are left fixed. So it key, it makes it so get a guy who's pretty exhausted, carrying a big bag. He's coming down from no cap. It's four days. He's already been on it. Pretty worked. And he gets there and he's going to do a repel. Well, that's a, that is a recipe for a disaster. Here's this guy. He's hands are prone. He wants to go down. So you've got fixed ropes. All he does is click this and he can tail down, right? And so they leave him. Park service leaves him, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now it's getting to the point where somebody wants to work on the head wall of the Salafe route, which is like the last 400 feet or so of that route. And it's the, one of the hardest parts of the climb. Well, you're going to climb all the way up from the bottom and get to there and start working on that after you climb 2,000 700 feet to get there? No, I just want to work on that. I don't want to go through all that other stuff. Hoof it up to the top, hang a rope down, rappel in, what I call drop-ins. All these people, all these little terms, I've already got a name for it because I've seen all these people. So they're drop-ins. I don't even photograph anybody that looks like a drop-in, right? (laughs) I'm not going to photograph that guy. If I see there's no baggage and there's a rope hanging there and he's going up this rope, I'm not going to bother to even take his picture because he's a Mm drop-in. And what happens is, Evening comes, they work the head wall, they come up, and they're going to camp on top illegally, <laughs> right? They're going to camp on top and they're going to leave that rope hanging down that pitch. So late in the evening, when another crew comes up, who's come up from the bottom, done everything right. Now there's a big rope right in front of them hanging in that crack with gear in it. Mm. And that ruins the experience for them, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter because this drop-in wants to do that route free someday, right? And then you start, you start seeing that in the middle of the route. Somebody will leave a rope and then come back, go back to town, what I call go back to town, come back to the ground and, you know, go to Degnan's and whatever they're going to do, go with the calf or hang around for three days. And they leave those ropes hanging there. So that's kind of what the park service is complaining about. And it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nothing more aggravating. I think when Connor free climbed the nose, somebody had left six ropes hanging down from the top. So when he did the whole last section, he had to push while he's free climbing those difficult cracks. He's fighting the rope to get mm-hmm. the rope out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. And that really detracts from the experience, right? So they got a valid point there. Mm-hmm. But the main ropes, the fixed lines coming down from heart and to get off of the mountain, those have been there for years. The, the idea has been there for years. The ropes are changed regularly. Mm-hmm. But we had a person killed on the East Ledge's descent because they thought one of the ropes happened to be there. Someone had left the rope, hadn't anchored it. It just somehow the rope was dropped and left there. Some guy clipped into it and repelled off. Well, he took the rope with him and was killed, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they have a early point. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of old school, though. I'm not so modern, you know. But, it, you know, I, I figure if you're really that, in, that interested in freeing it, why don't you get to a level where you can actually do that in a reasonable way? Basically, it's siege climbing again, back mm-hmm. to the old days where you're siege climbing, right? That's what basically working the climb is. You made a sport climb out of a big wall climb. And so you have people who want to do the big wall. You got sport climbers who want to, you know, this is their little dog and pony show for their money. And so they're willing to do that. So it's a problem. 
I don't know. I mean, I don't climb anymore. You know, I gave up climbing when I was like 64, mm-hmm. maybe 65 arthritis. I couldn't hold on anymore, you know, plus I've gotten out of shape, mm-hmm. but it doesn't bother me. It's not a problem for me, but I think way beyond me, it doesn't, doesn't matter what affects me. It affects what's helping. You know, like I say, there's nobody but me that holds anybody accountable for anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And the park service tries, but they don't do a very good job of it, you know. And then everybody gets pissed if they do. And so I'm like, wait a minute, the fixed lines are gone, dude. What happened? Oh, yeah, the rangers came up and took it down yesterday. God, that was, God. you know. Mm-hmm. So everybody's mad at the rangers because they're trying to enforce the rules. Mm. And they have, I always say, hey, those guys, they own the place. We just visit, mm. right? Mm-hmm. We're visitors there. We don't own that place. They can't, they have the law on their side. They can ban that stuff if they want. You can say they're being nice about it, but they're understaffed, right? So they can't enforce every, like we have some climbers who will fix five pitches and it'll take them two weeks to actually get started on a climb and they've slowly fixed five pitches, right? And there the rope is, mm. right? And they spent two weeks, oh, they, oh, I had to go to Fresno to get chili or whatever, whatever their excuse is. And so they leave a rope fixed. So if the park service comes and says, hey, you, you have only 24 hours. Well, that guy, you know, they get mad about it and they complain and gripe and the park service, ah, ah. go on social media, rip the park service. Mm. But the park service, they're understaffed. They, they don't send people along that base every day willing to climb up and take ropes down. Mm. And the climbers know that. They'll take advantage of that. They used to have a deal where I did it once, but I'm not proud of it. But where you get to the top of El Cap, put your haul bag stuff that wasn't going to break, tossed it off. <laughs> didn't want to carry it down, right? We call tossing. I tossed it. Right. So one guy that tossed, there was a team of rangers climbing, dawn wall, early morning light, and big haul bag goes flying by, almost hit him. So they came down and said, who the hell put, you know, you nearly killed us. And But it was common. Mm. People were just tossing bags off. But the bags are 150 pounds sometimes. Mm. You know, 100 pounds is not uncommon. So you stagger down there. I've staggered many a time. It's exhausting. So much easier to toss it off the cliff. Well, I was cured in 92. Brad Jarrett and I tossed our bag off the dihedral. It was off, we threw it off the dawn wall. We'd done the dihedral. Big old heavy bag, a lot of pins. It goes down, hits Wino Tower, right? Wino Tower. The bag splits in half. Oh, everything in the bag sprays out on a huge fan going down the face. Pins and hammers and sleeping bags were being carried off to the east in the wind. We lost half our gear. And I said, what the hell, man? I'd never done it. He said, oh, yeah, we got to do that, Tom. We just, they want to carry that down. I said, how? I lost half of my damn gear tossing it back. So that cured me. But then when I started think, giving it serious thought, hey, these days, tourists are walking along the base. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. People are out there looking for gear sometimes. Climbers are mm. there hiking up to do their climb. So El Capitan, back in the 60s, it was empty. When I first climbed El Capitan, there were five routes on the face. That was it. Mm. Now there's 110 or so. I'm interested to see how maybe that something similar will happen around the conversation of overusing fixed lines and the drop-ins and that yeah, kind of thing. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. It's a little more complicated than the, the well, bags. It's tough because you have people coming from Europe. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who are wanting to free climb El Cap, for some reason, are Europeans. Mm-hmm. You don't have a lot of Americans, as many, as many Americans as you would think. Like probably 20% of the climbers are European or foreign, maybe more, maybe a little more, but the preponderance of free climbers aren't Americans. 
proponents of free climbers are Europeans mm-hmm. or Asians or whatever, mm-hmm. not native to America. Um, okay, so we're we're getting low on time, but I do have a couple more questions for you. Who do you think we should keep our eye on? Who's up and coming in Yosemite climbing? Up and coming changes every two years. <laughs> so there are people who are who you never heard of who suddenly are the the it person or one of the it people, I you should say really. And so I don't keep a list of those. I don't really I don't I don't have that uh I don't have that information really, um, but there are plenty of them. And uh, usually it's somebody on SAR. Mm-hmm. They're the upcomers because they're here. They get to live here where the normal person comes from someplace else and they can spend two weeks, maybe, or three even. These guys are here from, uh, from April to November. And so these are the people that generally come up. So Nick and those guys, uh, um, there's a bunch of them that are, that are really doing great. The guys who did uh, just did a triple the other day, uh, three El Cap, uh, three big routes in a day, right? Uh, Watkins, Half Dome, and El Cap, and the El Cap in a day, right? Mm-hmm. In 24 hours. I don't remember their names, but and there's other things like that. Or somebody did a double the other day, and you don't know who these people are. They're not on social media really, because the real, the real devotees or the obsessed, right? The obsessed. They're not doing it for social media. They, they've got their own obsession working. So mm. that's what I say. The El Cap report, I didn't mention this, but it started out, I was interested in doing that. It was pretty interesting, you know? And then it's, hey, that's a hobby. I got to be a hobby. And then somebody said, well, gee, you, you do this a lot, da, 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 da. Yeah, I've got a passion now. Okay. I'm passionate about this. Wow. And then I'm at 11 o'clock at night. Instead of going to bed, I'm writing the El Cap report. I've got an obsession. And the one thing about obsessions is you feed an obsession. Obsession mm-hmm. must be fed. An interest can be left for a while and you come back. Obsessions have to be fed. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I've stopped the LCAP report is I don't want to feed the obsession anymore. I want to I want to drop that obsession. Mm-hmm. And that's why I stop it. I could keep on doing it. I'm in decent health, you know, mm-hmm. even though I'm 80. I could I could do it. Mm-hmm. But I just decided, Tom, for your own good, next time you go to Yosemite, sit out in the meadow, take some pictures. When it comes to be five o'clock, have dinner in the calf, talk to some people, relax, maybe even stay out in the meadow longer, you know, have some fun, enjoy it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't rush from here to here because, oh, I've got to get that report done. I've got to get those pictures done. I got to do this. I got to do that. Why do I have to do that? Mm. It's the obsession. You got to yeah. feed your obsession. So no more obsession. <laughs> What do you think, like, is there a next evolution or a next cutting edge of LCAP climbing? Like, are we just kind of, are people just going to keep trying to like, you know, tick off more free climbs and that's going to be the cutting that's edge? That's what they're going to do. It's about free climbing now. Mm-hmm. The A climbing, because in recent years with the development of uh, beaks, I don't, you probably don't know A climbing gear, but uh, the development of the beak has made, has taken a grade off, grades from A1 to A5, A5 climbs, there's, Maybe one left. I don't even know that there's one left. But the invention of this piton, the beak it's called, it's a very, it's a blade, very thin blade, and totem cams. Hmm. In old pen scars, you can use totem cams very effectively. And the other kinds of cams over the years, if you were using a lobe of those, pretty sketchy. But the totem cam is designed for that. And it's so good that you can quickly have a good piece of gear on a hard climb. 
And so aid gears made a big difference in the, in the aid climbing. So the aid climbing is not going to get any harder because all the routes have been done. Maybe there's a seam somewhere up there that's 60 feet long that nobody's ever climbed, mm. but that's not the direction, right? Aid climbing is done on El Cap. I mean, that as far as new aid climbing, now aid climbing is great. There's a lot of cool things about it, especially clean aid. And then, but now everything is, is the major force that's driving Yosemite climbing is free climbing big El Cap routes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And right now, for the most people, it's in its infancy. Maybe one, maybe the free rider, they've got free rider, they go to Golden Gate because that's relatively easy. And it's only really half of the wall. The other lower half isn't, isn't anything. So, so they try to get those two. And then if you're doing El Corazon, Europeans are getting good at El Corazon. That's pretty hard. And stuff like the nose, we still have less than 10 people who've ever freed the nose. And there it sits 10 minutes from the road. And yet, where are these super climbers? And Ondra came, Adam, he came to do the Dawn Wall, which he ended up doing over a period of a month, he ended up doing that. One of his plans was, I talked to Heinz Zach, Heinz said, old buddy from back in the day. Anyway, um, Ondra tried the nose. He said, oh, I'm going to go free climb the nose. He's hoping to onsite it. He was done by the stove legs. <laughs> Right. He couldn't he he couldn't he fell off by then. Mm. Right. So some climbs like the nose, boy, it's really hard to just walk on there and do it, especially if you're a guy like Ondra, who this the new standard, you climb every pitch. Your buddies, your belay buddy, you know. Mm -hmm. So now you have a team of two good free climbers. Okay, if you want to do Golden Gate, I'll belay you up Golden Gate, but you gotta belay me up El Corazon. Mm -hmm. So it used to be a team of a team ascent was com perfectly normal, considered the way to do it, mm, right? Mm -hmm. You don't lead every pitch, right? You only lead half of them because yeah. your partner wants to lead pitches. Makes perfect sense. But now to get the real check, the real tick off of that, you got to lead the whole thing yourself. Mm, so mm -hmm. we have teams that come in and actually one guy does one climb, another guy does another. Now that's another question. The guy who's second, did he climb the route? Yeah. <laughs> And what you say is, what we want to know is, what did you do and how did you do it, right? And he will be the first to tell you. Like uh, uh, Cannon, Jordan Cannon did uh, Golden Gate and uh, Mark Hewden, the old, uh, you probably don't know these names. but No, I've, I've actually met Mark. Yeah, he's great. Well, yeah, Mark, <laughs> he's a trip. He and I go heads all the time. Because <laughs> who's shorter, you know? <laughs> so uh, Jordan does it, right? Sends it. It comes down, you know, and I said, hey, Hewden, how did I heard you did Golden Gate? What do you think he said? No, no, I was just I was helping him do it. I said, I'm working on free rider. <laughs> but now some of these people would say, oh, yeah, I did that. Mm. I mean, that's more climbing than climbing the guide's fixed line. Right. And mm. saying you're the greatest climber, the greatest Mongolian climber in the world because you did El Cap. Mm -hmm. right? Tell us what you did. Tell us how you did it. So, yeah. So, yeah, he didn't do the climb, but he's not claiming to do the climb mm -hmm. where other people would claim to do the climb. And then you ask him, well, wait a minute. Well, how do you do that? Oh, well, Bill led that. Oh, well, maybe you didn't do that. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the integrity thing that gets a little slippery in climbing. Mm -hmm. Glazed over sometimes. Another question. We got time. Well, yeah. So your last, my last question is kind of like, what is what have your feelings been about saying goodbye to the LCAP report and what's it like to have left this massive impact on the climbing community? 
well, I don't know how you never heard of it. So how massive is it? You know, we say you're famous that you never heard of me. Well, that's true. I never until this. So I'm not famous. It's not massive. But in that particular niche, you know, that's where I me, mean, you know, so I've had people say, oh, we're going to do the, uh, the direct route on uh, higher cathedral spire. Could you shoot us? You know, I say, no, I only shoot El Cat. Mm. I do for friends. I'll shoot something else. But yeah, so it's a very small area that I'm. I was the ruler of for a while, you mm-hmm. know. I pass, you know. We've had, uh, unfortunately, there's nobody to pass it on to. Mm-hmm. I, there's nobody, nobody ever did it before, and nobody will ever do it again. And the reason is that all of that stuff was that I did with the report and all of that, and all the blogging and all of the internet and pictures, thousands, hundreds of thousands of pictures. I did all that after I retired from teaching. Mm. I was over 60 years old mm-hmm. before I even started doing all that. Now I'm 80, right? So all of that happened because I had an obsession. I had the time, mm. right? And I had, a, from my teaching years, I have a pension and I saved a bunch of money so mm. that I could do this. So I had, I could be there with no economic loss. Mm. Somebody says, well, why don't you get an apprentice? Is some guy who's 25, is he going to be able to do that, not not, not making any money mm. and be that crazy about it, that he's going to do all that work and understand the photography even? It mm. took me years to figure out the photography, how to do it, where, what time of day is the light going to be on Peanut Ledge on Zodiac, where I can take that picture and have it be gorgeously dark, but the guy stands out in the sun. Mm. What time of day is that? So you have to learn all of the light, right? So the lighting is a, a job in itself. Then you have to know how to photograph it so the lighting doesn't, like the wall's black, but here's a guy out there in a red shirt who's in the sun. How do you take his picture but save the background? Or white, or if he's there and you got him great, but now there's no rock anymore. There's just this black thing. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Well, you got to learn how to do that. And so I've learned how to do that. I learned how to take the pictures. I have knowledge of the cliff. It's taken years to get there. I have, I can afford to be there in time. I don't have to work and money. I don't have to earn money. Mm-hmm. Right. So there won't be another guy who does that. So this is a one shot deal. Right. I'm sad to see it go because I won't be that involved anymore. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for sharing all of this insight behind the scenes of the LCAP report. Do you want to leave us with any last stories or thoughts? I've got some stories, but uh, no, not uh, not really. Just uh, enjoy your time. It's a it's a short. That's one thing I've learned is it's amazingly short in your life. You think it. You of course you're very young. You, you think oh you do have a lot of years left, but I've got like five or six years left, right? And I look back on it. One of the things about your life is if you do different things, your life will and you'll have a richer life. Right. Like when I taught for 30 years and I think back on it, I taught high school math, uh, physics and algebra. So when I look back on it, it seems to me as the whole thing was about five years instead of 30. Yeah. And you know the reason for that? You do the same thing every day in teaching. OK, so no day is it really any different. At the time, you might have had a good time and a laugh about this or that. But when you do 100 more days, you forget about that time. Right. Mm. So. As you get older, the time will go faster unless you do different things. 
Now, when I look back on my climbing, I can remember pitches and this and that. I remember that really well because it was different from what I was doing. So if you can do different things, if you can get into surfing or you can get into this or that and climbing, don't let yourself become obsessed with one little thing. Because when you're done with that, you, you define yourself by that. I'm a climber. That's how you define yourself. When you're done with climbing, what am I now? You know? So yeah. I was the I was I was a very athletic guy. So I was a good skier. I was an excellent golfer. Um, I was a climber. I did. Uh, I mean, I did all kinds of sports. Well, now that I'm older, eighty. I mean, how many skiers are eighty? Or my, you know, or climbers even. Like I went to the doctor not too long ago. He said, "Okay, well, we're doing a bone density scan, and you have low bone density, so don't climb on a ladder. Don't climb on a ladder. You know." Yeah. So I think. What are you talking about, Doc? I climbed El Cap. No, that's gone now. Mm. So I'm no longer that. I'm no longer a climber. I'm no longer a skier. I'm no longer a golfer. I'm no longer a hiker. I'm no longer, no longer, no longer. That's what I was. Mm -hmm. So what am I now? Well, what I did was I'm a photographer and I write this blog that's read all over the world. That's who I am now. Well, now the blog that's read all over the world, that's gone. So what am I now? I'm a, I'm a photographer now. Mm-hmm. And that's about all I am now. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I was, I was a hell of a was, but mm-hmm. if you don't do those things, you need to, you need to have something that you do that, that keeps you happy and, and keeps you interested in life. And if you don't have that, if suddenly all that drops away, like Quinn, when she was fell, I don't know if you know Quinn's story. Maybe you do. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, she became paralyzed. Her whole life changed in an instant, right? So what did she do? She was no longer a climber. She couldn't do ultra marathons. She couldn't do this, couldn't do that. Now she, So she redefined herself. She's not happy about it. You know, she's still pissed. But yeah. you see her out there on her bike, you know, a four-wheeler going at it and doing this or that and the other, and she's busy all the time. So she's redefined herself. I pity the person who can't redefine themselves because nothing lasts forever. Yeah, I thought when I retired, oh, this is great. I'll just climb El Cap a bunch. It'd be great. You know, I'm working all these years. I'm going to do a bunch of El Cap routes. Hey, you can't do El Cap routes anymore, Tom. You don't have the stamina anymore. Your body's older now. You've got arthritis. You can't do that. In fact, I was a top level racquetball player for a number of years. I don't have any cartilage left in this joint. I can't I can't lift my hand higher than this. Right. I can't play racquetball anymore but that's what it did to me well if i can't lift this hand any higher than that i sure as hell can't climb yeah can't play golf can't do this can't do that Mm. redefine yourself so i'm right at this moment i'm a photographer and that's and i was this guy who made up this thing in yosemite and i feel a great deal of pride in that and i get a great deal of comfort from that i did something that nobody else has ever done and nobody will ever do again. Mm-hmm. So I am, you know, unique in all the world. <laughs> unique in all the world. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And I think that's a message that a lot of climbers need to hear, honestly, because I think your idea about identification and when that take that is taken away from you, because it inevitably will be because we're going to get older. What does it mean to redefine yourself? So thank you for sharing that with It's you. like your kid goes off to college and then they get married and suddenly... You're no longer responsible for that child. What were you? I was a mother, you know? Well, you're mm. not a mother. You're a mother, but you're not a mother like you were. Mm. So what are you going to do now, mama? <laughs> you know, 
mm-hmm. your plan now? How's your life going to be good? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You're going to have a hell of a time splicing this together. <laughs> you can slow it down, though, can't you? Mm-hmm. I'm no longer with the El Cap Report. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much, Tom, for your time and all your insights. All right. Well, thank you. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. We're sharing more under-celebrated stories from Yosemite at the AAC's biggest gathering of the year, our annual fundraiser, the annual Benefit Gala. Grab your tickets and support our work at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash annual dash benefit dash gala.